from verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Our second reading is from Malachi, page 961, and we're in chapter 2, verse 10 to 16. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. This is God's word. Good morning, bro. Thanks for uh, reading that. If you're joining us today, we're um, working our way through the book of Malachi uh, for five, six weeks. Uh, Here we are, week three, and we come to this uh, little section. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 is just by way of backdrop in one sense, or just to help us understand it rightly. Uh, But God's call for faithfulness. Let's pray. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, thank you that we know you clearly. You've revealed your character to us as one who is faithful, as one who cannot lie, as one who has never broken a promise. Not one of your promises to your people has failed. And so, Father, looking to you, understanding you, being changed and shaped by you, would we be those sort of people who are faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, did you know, you may well have picked this up, every year the, uh, the OED has its word of the year. That's not just new things that enter the English dictionary. That is the word which is, uh, uh, in, the, in this year had the biggest spike. It, all of a sudden, it's could have been bumbling around for a while, but all of a sudden, woo, everyone starts using a certain word. So uh, last year, it was emoji. Emoji was the word of the year. No, you know, not many people had used it, but all of a sudden, that gets uh, uh, used uh, ad nauseum. Um, om- 2012, omnishambles. I quite like that word. Uh, it sort of died away. We should bring that back. Uh, particularly at church. Let's have more of an omnishambles. Um, uh, 2006, the, the, the word of the year that spiked was, with two Vs in the middle, bothered. <laughs> well, let's let that one lie. Uh, I'm not sure we need uh, much use of that. But uh, the, the word of the year was declared this week. I don't know quite how they do it in November before waiting. What happens if all of a sudden something very exciting happens in December? But anyway, they've declared it. Do so you see what it is? The word of the year. 
post-truth. So it's been around for a decade or more, but all of a sudden the word that has spiked usage in the UK more than any other is post-truth, by which they define it as circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping opinion than appeals to emotion. You get that? Objective facts are less influential in shaping opinion than appeals to emotion or personal belief, they go on to say. So it's not, as I say, it's not a new word, it's been around, but they're just the, the, the commentary with it is say, well, in a year we've had a, a big Brexit debate uh, in the UK and um, you know, the, the, the really demonstrable one, you know, the bus, 350 million pounds a year we will get back from Europe. That's not true, is it, Boris? <laughs> um, probably not. Are you going to change it on your bus? No. Why not? Well, because it's having an influence upon people. I mean, it's not true, but it influences people, so great, let's run for it. Uh, I guess one or two would comment similar sort of observations on the U.S. presidential election. Uh, that one or two claims that were made probably won't turn out uh, to be highly true. Uh, we shall see. But post-truth, that's the world that we live in. What? What? What ever happened to keeping your word? Whatever happened to faithfulness when you said something and it meant what you said? But I guess it's just a feature of our culture which you could ask, where is faithfulness? Culturally, people aren't too fussed about that. Uh, it's far more important in the 21st century to be authentic than to be faithful. You've got to be true to yourself. Uh, and if you made marriage vows one year, 10 years, 20 years ago, but now you feel you'd be happier outside of marriage, well, that's important. It's more important to be authentic to yourself than it is to be faithful. And that's a sort of cultural narrative in which we live. And so um, uh, in the last 25 years, it's all, all different ages and stages, over the last 25 years, divorcing among the over 60s has doubled from the figures before. Just goes up and up. And this isn't particularly uncommon. So here was in my newspaper. I've got that first one, Christian. Uh, here's, the, here's the newspaper headline uh, last month. Men in Affairs, it didn't make me feel guilty. It made me happy. So it's okay. That's all right. It didn't make me feel guilty. It made me feel happy. So it must have been the right thing to do. I mean, no mention really about what that means for the kids. If they're children in marriage, what about them? Are they happier? Probably not, by any observation. And actually, culturally, what about levels of loneliness, which go up and up and up and up and up in any survey? Or here's, a, here's something that came out. This is Time magazine. I don't know if we got this one. Uh, 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 just, this, is a little, this is about a year ago now, actually. Uh, the beta marriage, how do millennials approach I do? Millennials, those who left school after the year 2000. Um, Excludes one or two here, I fear to say. Uh, but uh, that's sort of a tranche of people. Uh, and they were asked um, to choose from a number of partnership options. If you were going to go for options for marriage, what would you go for? Well, 30% chose in marriage, I think it should be until death us do part. You marry, that's it. You signed up forever. 30%. 43% wanted a two-year probationary period. 
So we have, we marry, we have a two-year probation, and then we decide whether to dissolve or commit. But we've got to, you know, try before you buy, sort of philosophy. So that was the most popular. 30% death as two parts, 43% probationary period, 21% wanted a presidential system. That may have sort of all sorts of uh, 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 comparisons in our mind now. But anyway, by that they meant vows last for four years and then you choose to renew them or not. So husband and wife sign up. We're signing up for four years. How do we feel? Do we like this or are we going to vote someone else in? And that's how people are approaching marriage. Now again, in a culture where by any statistical analysis of any age group, loneliness goes up and up and up. You might want to ask the question, why are people becoming lonely? Because there are multiple reasons for it. But one must be, you can only give of yourself fully. You can only reveal your heart, your secrets. You can only be naked emotionally before someone if you think they'll accept you, if they're committed to you. If you think we're together for two years and then we'll take a vote or we've got a four-year period, you've got to hold back. You can't give everything. You can't reveal who you are in entirety because what if they break your heart? They walk away in two years, four years. Uh, Without faithfulness, you can't take the risk of self-giving. You can't. Now, a functioning marriage needs faithfulness to the promises till death us do part. It's hard to function without those. The people in Malachi's day were unfaithful. Five times you get in this passage that they are unfaithful. Uh, Three times it's an accusation. Uh, Verse 10, you're being unfaithful. Verse 11, Judah's been unfaithful. Uh, Verse 14, you've been unfaithful. And twice towards the end it becomes a command. Don't be unfaithful, verse 15 and verse 16. That's the issue. These people were unfaithful. Now, if you are joining us, uh, Malachi then, uh, writing about 450 BC, he's God's prophet, uh, he's addressing the people, and uh, they're a half-hearted bunch. They're sort of going through the motions, they turn up, they do what they're meant to do, but the word of God is not affecting them. Having a God doesn't change how they live. They're just going through the motions, really. And so Malachi is attacking them for that. So here it's the way they're unfaithful in marriage. Next time it's how they treat one another. There's a lack of social justice, chapter 3, verse 5. You're not paying your workers. You're, you're oppressing the poorest in society. Uh, then in a couple of weeks' time, chapter 3, verse 8, how they use their money. There's all sorts of problems with them. But here it's they're not faithful. And I want to look at it this way. Uh, Three things. Malachi will say, look, if you're faithless to people, then you're faithless to God. One is a mark of the other. Second, here's the key issue. They were unfaithful to their marriage covenant. And then thirdly, is his command, which is be faithful like your God who's faithful to you. Those are not memorable, but it's all right. They're written down. Here's, I guess, the general principle. First, that if you're faithless to people, then you're faithless to God. 
the main issue in the text is, uh, I guess, that the men, uh, the Israelite men, are divorcing their wives to marry younger women from the surrounding nations. That's the overall issue. There's one or two other things. But God would say, in doing so, that reveals a lack of faithfulness to me. Verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Do you see that connection? We're unfaithful to one another. That means we profane the covenant. Now, what does that mean? Well, throughout the Bible, God makes covenants, or you might simply call them promises, to his people. Fundamentally, I will be your God, you will be my people. It's the most fundamental promise of the scriptures. Look, I've committed myself to you, now follow me. It's a covenant. It's not meant to be broken. The millennials and their beta marriages, they want contracts. Let's sign up for two years, then let's sign up for four years. Uh, Much like you might sign up a contract for a car on a lease hire agreement or a phone. um, And then you come to the end and is it mutually beneficial? And so you break it. That's a contract. A covenant is a promise forever. Very different. And they were told the Israelites are treating their covenant with God as profane. That is, it's special, but they're treating it as common. If someone, your your spouse, your sibling, your housemate, took your, whatever it is, your favorite garment. Most people have one. Some of them, it's slightly obscure. It's my socks or whatever it is. But your favorite dress that you wear when you want to go dressy, um, your, or your, yeah, sorry, uh, your favorite shirt, whatever it is, and someone takes it and then uh, one day you come home and they're cleaning up milk that's spilt on the table and you say, ooh, not with that, that's a J-cloth job, you don't clean up the milk, you don't clean up the stale curry with my favorite dress, you're taking something which is special and treating it as profane, and that's what Israel is doing here. This extraordinary privilege of having relationship with God. And they just treat it as nothing, nothing special at all. How are they abusing their relationship with God? It is by being unfaithful to one another. Do you see that connection? If you are unfaithful with people, you are demonstrating unfaithfulness to the Lord. No, I guess there should be no real surprise to us in that. When Jesus is asked in the New Testament, teacher, which is the greatest of the commandments in the Old Testament? He said, the greatest is this. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with your strength. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commandments. There are no great, he literally says, there are no greater commandments than these, plural. Sorry, which is the greatest? Oh, it's to love the Lord your God. And it's to love other people. And there's no one commandment greater than these two because you can't really separate them very well. You can try and pull them apart, but spiritually they're just magnets. They come back together. How you are treating other people really is reflecting your relationship with the Lord. If you're faithless to others, you are faithless to him. And that is what Malachi is pointing out to them. The flip side is true, though. If, if you have a healthy relationship with the Lord, if you are faithful to him, 
you will be faithful to others, to your other relationships. Be it in business, be it, as we'll see next time, how you treat your employees, how you treat the poorest in society. You, you will be faithful to them if you have a clear relationship, if you're faithful to God. And certainly in your marriages, if you're faithful with him, you'll be faithful to others. But if you have no relationship with God, or what will keep you faithful in your other other commitments? Well, whether you feel like it. Whether whether at the end of two years, four years, it still works for you. Whereas if you have a commitment to the Lord as a believer, that sets your promises in concrete. That puts steel in the backbone of your words if you're faithful to him. So there's a general principle of the text, I guess. If you're faithless to people, you're faithless to God and vice versa. Let's look at the specifics, secondly. Uh, They were unfaithful. This is what's going on here. They were unfaithful to their marriage covenant. Uh, And Malachi sort of splits it into two. So verses 11 and 12, it's the choice of partner. And then 13 to 15, it's just in getting divorced. So we can probably break it into those two. Although it's the one issue, they're getting divorced to choose different partners. But anyway, verses 11 and 12, it's their choice of partner that's the problem. Let me read. Verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. They're marrying people who don't worship the Lord and therefore should be kicked out. Now, we need a little translation work uh, here because Malachi is writing to a different audience in 450 BC that you and I gathered here today. There's a gap between us and them. You might put it in these terms. There's certainly a cultural gap. Israel is surrounded by barbaric nations, wicked people, offering children in sacrifice, utter mistreatment of women. That is different to France or Belgium. Okay? You may not like other nations in Europe. I'm not going into that sort of discussion, but it just simply isn't the same. Were one of your members of your family, were a good friend of yours, says, I'm going to marry this person. Oh, and you meet them, and they are the most radical member of ISIS, who upon meeting you says, as soon as I have the chance, I will kill you, because you are kafir, and therefore you should be killed. Now, if that was your friend, your sibling's choice of marriage partner, you might have a, you might have a little freak out at that moment in time. What is that sort of thing we're talking about here? They're marrying, the men are marrying women from a culture which is despicable. That is not the same as marrying someone in clogs from Holland. It's just different. I think you can see that, okay? So there is a a cultural gap. I guess more significantly, there's a theological gap. So in the Old Testament, God's plan of redemption rests with one nation, Israel, He says to the one nation, you are my people, and you need to be a witness to the rest of the world. You need to show the rest of the world how good I am. And you mustn't compromise. If you compromise, 
then no one else is going to show the world what I'm like. And the rest of the world is stuffed. So the salvation of the world rests with you, Israel. You've got to be distinctive. You cannot be compromised by who you worship. Do you remember the... uh, uh, I saw this fairly recently, stayed up too late watching enough film. But The Untouchables, Kevin Costner, he was quite good in those days. And, um, uh, you know, the story, the sort of truish sort of story of Elliot Ness. He's the policeman who gets dropped into Chicago in a Prohibition area, era to try and clean up Chicago because Al Capone's got it sewn up. And he arrives and realizes he, the whole police force is corrupt and there's nothing he can do. The whole lot of them are corrupt because Al Capone is paying them off. So, um, so what does he do? Well, Elliot Ness, uh, Kevin Costner, he says, well, blow this. Uh, I'll get Sean Connery. He's always good for an accent. Um, for some reason, he gets Sean Connery. But then he goes and recruits everyone straight from the police academy. So no time for them to get corrupt. Corrupted. And, um, uh, but there's one key point in the film where uh, Al Capone's henchmen come to Ness and say essentially how much? How much? We've bought everyone else. How much for you? And he says, no, you've misunderstood. You can't buy me. And at that moment in the film, though, the, the whole of Chicago is dependent upon him not being corrupt. If he goes, there's no one going to clean up the town. In this culture for Israel in 450 BC, they are God's people. If they compromise, there's no one to tell the world uh, about how good the Lord is. So when you get verse 11, Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. That is not a racist comment. It's a theological comment. The Bible is clear, people from every nation, every culture are made in God's image. Plenty of cross-cultural marriages here in church would be in a bit of trouble if uh, this was attacking that. It's, not a t- it's a theological comment. But in the New Testament, God says to his people, the church, you are my chosen people. You must be distinctive. You mustn't compromise because then how will a watching world know of the salvation there is in Jesus Christ? So they're unfaithful in their choice of partner. But what about the specifics? How does that apply to marrying? Well, as I say, the New Testament is a different historical and theological climate. We had a little bit of 1 Corinthians 7 read. Now, Paul there has a greater nuance than Malachi chapter 2. And so he can say there, look, if you find yourself in a marriage with someone who's not a Christian, you keep going with that, of course. In the New Testament era, plenty of arranged marriages taking place. Parents tell you what to do and you have to get on with it. Same as there are in the world today. You could be a Christian in India and be told by your parents, here's the person you marry. And Paul says, no, you, well, you, you carry on. But this side, while you're single... If the choice is in your hands, marry a Christian. So Paul says to the widow in 1 Corinthians 7, you're free to marry anyone you want, but choose one who belongs to the Lord. Because it's very hard to live the Christian life otherwise. God cares deeply who you marry. 
And so actually choosing someone who doesn't know him, well, that will be unfaithfulness to Jesus. It causes pain to you. Okay, so they're unfaithful in their marriage partners, their choices. But as I said, that's only half the equation because the reason they're in that fix is because they've divorced their wives, verses 13 to 16. So they're unfaithful in going for divorce. Verse 13. Here's another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she's your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So Malachi says, God doesn't accept anything you do with your worship because of how you've treated your wives. Now that, I think, remains in many ways true. Peter can write in 1 Peter 3, Husbands, don't mistreat your wives or the Lord will not answer your prayers. There's some parallel there. But again, here, the fundamental issue is, You've broken a covenant. It's not just a contract between a man and a woman. It's a covenant that's broken, verse 14. When you married, the Lord was there as a witness between you and your wife. As Jesus put it in Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let not man divide. God has done that. Within a marriage, there's a man and a woman, and the Lord as witness, creating one out of two. I was struck by the language which Malachi uses to describe marriage or a spouse. It's very lovely. So writing to the husbands, he says, look, your spouse, she was the wife of your youth. Verse 14, she was your partner. She was the wife of your marriage covenant. It's lovely language, because that's what marriage is meant to be. Long-lasting, wife of your youth, partner, one you're in it together with, covenant, commitment. Marriage is meant to be a place of blessing to the man, to the woman, to the children, to society. Oh, look, it isn't always. Sinful humans can corrupt anything. Marriage can be a place of loneliness. It's not meant to be that, though. It's meant to be a wonderful gift, and therefore divorce is a terrible thing. So verse 15, has not the one God made you? You belong to him, body and spirit. What does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard. Don't be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Verse 16, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. Of course, there's, sometimes that's tragically true. There's violence within marriage. But here it's a picture, as the footnote says. To divorce your wife is to cover yourself with violence. It's a terrible thing. Now, again, the New Testament would add a little nuance to this. There's a distinction drawn in the New Testament between behavior which breaks the covenant of marriage and that which weakens it, if I can put it in those terms. So Jesus can say in Matthew 19, adultery breaks the marriage covenant. So try and reconcile, but it may be that divorce is permissible then. Paul could say 1 Corinthians 7, a 
abandonment breaks the marriage covenant. I try and reconcile, but it may be that divorce is the only course open at that stage. So there are behaviors which break the covenant of marriage. But that's not what Malachi is talking about. He's just talking about here about behavior which, you know, you just want a different sort of marriage. Divorce here is faithlessness. For the Israelites, they're divorcing their wives just because they want a younger spouse. And it's destroying the culture. It's destroying the nation. God hates it, divorce like that. And of course, it's worth noticing, it's not that he hates divorcees. The point here is, the Lord is so strong in his rebuke because he hates men abandoning women. His concern is for those who are wronged. He hates unfaithfulness to others. And he draws near to those who are brokenhearted as they're wronged. So there is the presenting issue. They were unfaithful to their marriage covenant. Okay. So the general principle, if you're faithless to God, excuse me, if you're faithless to people, you're faithless to God. The specifics is they were unfaithful to their marriage covenant. Third, what should you do? You should be faithful like your God. Who is faithful to you? Let me make a, a comment to all and then a comment to those who are married. Uh, they draw it together. A comment to all. What do we do with this? What does God want? Verse 15. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. What does the one God seek? Godly offspring. Now in the Old Testament, there's only one way to have godly offspring. It was to have offspring, uh, to have children. Uh, that was how it happened. You come to the New Testament and, well, it is very different. How do you become a child of God? It's by becoming a Christian. So actually every single believer here can give the Lord what he seeks, as it were. We can tell people about him. So people become Christians. The way the family of God grows is that. I think I probably also want to say to one and all, um, being involved in helping to raise children to be godly offspring is a wonderful thing. Uh, and certainly for those of us who do have kids and rely certainly on a Sunday and at other points during the week uh, for them to teach our children the scriptures, please say thank you. It's a great thing they're being involved in. It's a great thing that our children don't just have parents but have role models slightly closer in age to them. It's a wonderful thing that we give thanks to that or for that. But for those who are married... Marriage in the Bible is a picture of the relationship of Jesus Christ and his church. And therefore, it is never just a means of finding satisfaction or pleasure for yourself. It is always meant to be a husband and a wife demonstrating the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. And if we're unfaithful in marriage, we're saying that's what God is like. And he's not. Be faithful in your marriages, practically. Twice you see the command, verse 15, verse 16, be on your guard and don't be unfaithful. 
be on your guard. Those who have been married for, it doesn't matter how long it is, uh, be it a week or 10 years or 25 years, you know that the, the, the pressures of work, of home, of children, of money, they place strain upon a marriage. Be on your guard, Malachi says, against drift in your marriage. Be on your guard. Not many affairs boom, happen out of the blue. Most, not all, but most are a result of drift in a marriage. No great emotional connection anymore. Be on your guard, Malachi says. Watch out for that. Most of us who are married will have had at some point, may have lasted half an hour, may have lasted half a year, a period where we thought we would be much happier with someone else. Be on your guard. Don't indulge that. Don't indulge that thought. Don't be unfaithful to the wife, to the husband of your youth. Instead, be like your God, who is always faithful. Let me just remind you again of the context to this. Here are people in 450 BC... A thousand years more, early, or a thousand years earlier, God would describe their history a bit like this. Or this is the language of Ezekiel 16, talking about what had happened earlier. God says, "You know, Israel, I found you. You were like an orphaned girl in the gutter. You had nothing and no one caring for you. But I took care of you. I fed you. I nurtured you. I clothed you, and you grew up and you flourished. And then I, I married you, and I made you a queen." You went from the gutter to that, and I bestowed everything upon you. The riches that I had, I lavished upon you. And then you went off with other men. You went after other gods. And I pleaded with you, and I pleaded with you for all the prophets. Don't do that. Come back to me. And you went off with them. And so I said, okay, I let you go. And so you were destroyed by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. And they took you off into exile. And I loved you. Even though once again you're in the gutter, I brought you back to this land. And I brought you back to Jerusalem. And I loved you. And I still love you. And yet where is your faithfulness? I keep constantly loving you despite your rejection of me. Where is your faithfulness? And I guess to you and to me, the Lord would say, well, I brought you into this world. I gave you life. I gave you all your gifts, opportunities that you have. Uh, and yet you've, you walked away from me. And I loved you. I came down, lived and died as Jesus Christ so you could be reconciled. And yet still you drift. I love you. I am utterly faithful to you. Will you be faithful to me, says the Lord. And as you're faithful to others, that demonstrates your faithfulness to me. And if you're struggling with others, come back to me. Remember the faithful God that I am. So you'll be faithful to the wife of your youth, to your promises, to your words. Let's pray together.
uh, Father, uh, in a room uh, and uh, amongst a group of us such as this, only you know the the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions, the memories that a, a word like this stirs up. Thank you and praise you that you are faithful to us. And no matter where we find ourselves, would that truth be of enormous comfort? Perhaps we need that truth to be of rebuke if we're being unfaithful. But Father, please, would your faithfulness to us strengthen our resolve to be faithful to others, most particularly in our marriages, but to be faithful to others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.